The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Adams and Jefferson. Together, they worked to build our nation, but as individuals, they were worlds apart. Adams, a blunt Massachusetts lawyer who sparked intense arguments every time he spoke his mind. And Jefferson, a slippery and quiet Virginia planter with controversial and conflicting views on slavery and government. Two men, two vastly different styles and personalities, one common cause to create a government by the people, for the people. Part one of our two-part series on our complicated but essential revolution, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Alan and I are especially thrilled to welcome to American POTUS best-selling author Joseph Ellis. He is not only one of the nation's leading scholars on the revolutionary period, but also an amazing writer whose only fault that I can tell is that the reader can't put the book down and they lose track of time. Well, he's written 13 books, winning all sorts of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Founding Brothers, the Revolutionary Generation, and the National Book Award for American Sphinx, the character of Thomas Jefferson. I'm sure you've seen him on television as well. In addition to commentaries on CBS, C-SPAN, and CNN, he's participated in documentaries on the History Channel and American Experience on PBS. He also has a terrific new book out that's tearing up the bestseller list, titled The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783. We'll link to this new book and all of his work on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. Joe, I'm a personal fan of your writing, and I'm humbled to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us here on American POTUS. Scott, I'm overjoyed to be there. I was thrilled to hear that I'm going to be you know, just ravaging the best sellers because I didn't know that. And, uh, <laughs> but you're getting me up in Vermont, our second home. Uh, a humble home atop a mountain, though it does not look like Monticello. And um, uh, and uh, you've set me up in such a way that I'm all, it's almost guaranteed I'm going to disappoint you. No, I do care a lot about uh, the writing. Maybe we'll talk about that somewhere along the line. But um, uh, let the games begin and see if I can make any sense. Well, we're so excited to have you, Joe. It's a real honor. Let's start with your very aptly named book, American Sphinx, The Character of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was mysterious in many ways. And the chief mystery we debate today, of course, is how could a champion of freedom also own slaves and father children with one of those enslaved women? How did you personally reconcile those two explosively contradictory parts of the Thomas Jefferson story? Well, they're not rationally, can't rationally explain them. They're part of an understanding of Jefferson's character and personality that I try to develop in terms of the whole book. Jefferson operated best at a highly reified level. He was a child of the Enlightenment and knew from the beginning of his adult career that slavery was incompatible with the uh, values of the looming revolution. And he's among the earliest to, to say that and to commit himself to the belief that slavery is doomed. It's simply a vestige of the Middle Ages and feudal past and slave labor cannot compete with free labor, et cetera, et cetera. And in a pamphlet he writes called A Summary Review of the Rights of uh, British Americans in 1774, he says everybody in Virginia knows that slavery is doomed which, you know, everybody in Virginia needed to be apprised of that because <laughs> they didn't really agree. Uh, uh, I think that, and, you know, that in the end, he wrote the magic words of American history, the ones that begin, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And note that he, he changes the Lockean trilogy 
which is life, liberty, and property, and in play and puts pursuit of happiness, a phrase he gets from uh, a draft of the Williamsburg Constitution uh, that's being drafted at the same time. Um, but that's an important change because so subsequently Virginia and other slave owners will claim their property rights are part of what they're guaranteed in the uh, in the new American government. Um, but I'll go back to the, to the origin of your question uh, that it never dawns on him that somehow that means he should free all his slaves at Monticello. There's no connection between his intellectual convictions and his personal life at that stage, it appears. And, um, and over time, he develops a point of view that by the middle of the 1780s is his enduring adult permanent point of view, which is slavery's wrong. And it's uh, it violates the values which we claim to be fighting for in the revolution, which they call the cause. Uh, doesn't get called the American Revolution until late in the 1780s. But we can't end it. We cannot end slavery until we have a plan that will move all of the freed slaves to some other location. Uh, initially, they think it might be out in the, the West. But remember, we don't have the Louisiana Territory yet. Is it probably the Caribbean or even back to Africa because blacks and whites cannot live together in the same society? Because if we do, uh, they will intermarry, and that intermarried uh, hybrid will be an inferior kind of person. And again, the hypocrisy here or the con contradiction is just mind blowing because Monticello is a, a laboratory for racial mixing, and the now we have a consensus. I wasn't clear about it when I first wrote American Sphinx because we didn't have the the DNA evidence at that time. The DNA evidence comes out in 1997, but that he is fathering six children before we grow to maturity by Sally Hemings and the entire uh, staff of, the, of Monticello is, are very light-skinned Blacks. Some of them pass as white. And so get used to contradictions and the disarming thing about Jefferson is that he could pass a lie detector test on things that in which he's clearly at, at you know, the contradictions are obvious. When he writes to Abigail after his presidency and and, and she says, you know, and it says, I, you know, I really uh, am glad we're back together again because I've forgiven you for all your sins against me. And she says, are you kidding me? I mean, you know, <laughs> you're the one who. Uh, subsidized this guy James Callender to, deme to, to demonize my husband and my son, and he says I didn't do that. And it's you know they published the letters that he wrote to this guy Callender. So uh, and in his behavior in the Secretary of State behind the scenes to demonize Washington as a man who's senile and doesn't know what he's doing. This is part of his attempt to create a party behind this you know, that becomes the Republican Party. It's called in so many books, misguidedly, the Re Democratic Republican Party. That's not what he called it. Democracy remains an epithet in the American vocabulary until about 1816. Anyway, uh, long, too long-winded an answer to your first question. But when I say he's a sphinx, it means he is he he's able to levitate and posit uh, his truths at such a level that he's like a dirigible at the Super Bowl that is casting positive images to both sides. And um, But it doesn't mean that, uh, that he himself doesn't know what his core convictions are. And, um, and, uh, and so we can talk about that later. But I think that he's inherently uh, slippery, and is perceived by many of his contemporaries as inherently duplicitous. But in the end, he writes the great words in American history and his, his reputation will never go away because, and shouldn't go away because they are the magic words of American yeah. history. Well, speaking of the, the two sides of the coin, the opposites coming together in, in, in Jefferson, you talk in American Sphinx about his kind of constant desire to withdraw from public life to go back to Monticello, but at the same time, he's an internationally famous, very public persona. Right. How did that tension define his character and the path he took politically? Well, within the Virginia dynasty, uh, uh, upper, uh, 
the, the Ciceronian model was always one of the things they claimed to be acting in accord with the retire from public life and to their books and to their, their private lives. And, uh, and so it's not unique to Adam, to Jefferson, excuse me. So Adam said that, why is it that all the Virginia plants grow in the shade? And, um, and so when he first retired, he was really leading the campaign to become president, even though he didn't, he claimed not to know that he was a candidate. I think that, um, He's uncomfortable in combative situations. He can't stand conflict. Argument to him is dissonant noise. Adams loved argument. He thought it was the highest form of conversation. But he's, he heard these, these sounds in his head that were all wonderful and all rhymed or, uh, or all came together that always kept interacting with the real world, which refused to behave as he wanted it to. I think that my own fundamental understanding of his his kind of intellectual incoherence uh, and or his psychological complexity came when I was researching him. And you get to the you get to the time when he's in France, and so you get all the letters, hundreds of them, to and from, and he writes different people different things. That is. He writes to Virginians saying, no, I don't think slavery is going to end. And he writes to people in Paris saying, "It's you know, it's, we're ready to end it right now. One of the reasons that Jefferson only wrote one book that was ever published, um, Notes on Virginia, and he didn't want it published, is he wanted to target specific audiences and readers differently. And, um, and he says one thing to one group and another to another. And those honestly reflect different parts of Jefferson that are speaking truthfully. It's just that those parts don't talk to each other. Yeah, interesting. Well, one more contradictory part of his personality that you brought out in American Sphinx is that this is a very engaged politician. He took strong action when necessary, particularly as you've seen the Louisiana Purchase. Mm. But he advocated a very minimalist ideal of government. So how did a man who so distrusted any centralized power administer what, you know, the highest executive office in, in the land. It's probably the best example of his political contradiction because Jefferson was a firm believer that the United States was a plural noun and that it was not a nation. It was still a confederation uh, and sovereignty resided with the states that the federal government was, and he said this, a foreign government and that any robust executive action was monarchical. And those were his strong convictions throughout the 1780s and 90s. But then he's elected president. And the opportunity to acquire the, uh, the land between the Mississippi and the Rockies is, is available. And essentially what, what he says is, I know I'm contradicting myself. He seems to, to know it because Madison is telling him so. But it's too great an opportunity to miss that posterity would never forgive me if I missed this opportunity. And so he essentially takes, I think, the most consequential and uh, robust executive action in American history. This is a guy who claims to believe that any kind of executive action like that is tyrannical. Um, the only competing uh, claim, I think, to executive might be Truman's decision to drop the bomb. But uh, he he regrets this decision. Notice he doesn't put Louisiana Purchase on his gravesite, and he doesn't put presidency on right. his right. because what it has what it does is bring in all of this new territories, which will in the end, and you can the beginning of this is the Missouri Crisis, be the specific occasion for the Civil War. Um, because the question was whether slavery can be expanded into those territories. And the people on the, on the Whig side of that or the Federalist side of that will say, well, of course the federal government has that authority because Jefferson established that authority by making the, the purchase in the first place. And, and he just can't stand to know that. He, it also, it's also important if you want to be great to be lucky. And it just so happened he was president when Napoleon decided to cut his losses in America and focus on Europe and um, and sell the whole Louisiana purchase. And initially, they only thought they were going to get New Orleans. Uh, but he's also lucky because the French send a 
a unit, an army, a regiment into a Dominican Republic and current Haiti, and they're supposed to go from there to New Orleans and claim it for France. And it, and it's wiped out in the, by malaria and by the, the savage warfare there. And if they had been able to get to New Orleans, I'm not sure Napoleon would have sold the, the, uh, the purchase. So the, all things fall well for him um, in, in that particular moment. With this complicated man, I really enjoyed your analysis of the foundations of his political ideology, his readings of Enlightenment writers, this belief he had in this golden Saxon past. How did those ideas express themselves in the drafting of the Declaration and later in his approach to governing? How did he put those or try to put those ideas into practice? Oh, boy. I mean, I think they're going to be difficult to put into practice because they envisioned a complete change in the political templates of Western political thought. He's assisted by Madison in this. And a lot of things that Jefferson ends up saying and doing are really Madisonian. Uh, Madison is his, his uh, acolyte and, um, and, and allows him to avoid becoming foolish in terms of his idealism. But I think that the Declaration is his greatest achievement, of course, and that's the reason he puts it first on his tombstone. The most important words, you know, the ones that I've quoted earlier, we hold these truths to be self-evident, which occur very early in the in the document. The the Congress, who's editing it on July 2nd and 3rd, pass over that altogether. They think of it as a kind of rhetorical overture that, you know, isn't really part of the deal. And the main deal is a kind of legal prosecution indictment of George III. But what he does there that's crucial is he smuggles the natural rights philosophy into a document, which initially everybody thinks is going to be based not on natural rights, but on their rights as Englishmen, that George III has violated their rights as Englishmen by taxing them without their, and legislating for them without their consent and then sending armies after them. And so he smuggles in plain sight the whole liberal way of the liberal framework um, with regard to human rights, human rights, which will expand in time so that when they gather at Seneca Falls, the women say, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Um, and to push it all the way to the 20th century when Martin Luther King uh, meets uh, steps onto the Lincoln Memorial. He says, "I've come to collect on a promissory note written by Thomas Jefferson." So that there it is. It's and and he does it so so effortlessly. And I'm not sure that he knows what he's doing. I I do know that he doesn't believe that African Americans are equal to whites. And and right now I, I and when he's president. Gallatin, his secretary of treasury, comes to him and says, there are people thinking perhaps we ought to put a woman on the, in the cabinet. And he says, I'm not sure the American people are ready for that. And I know for sure that I am not ready. And um, so, uh, but the words are the words he wrote, which, which have much more expansive implications. I think that his mind works best at the highest, most reified levels. When I was working with Ken Burns on his two-hour, three-hour uh, documentary on Jefferson, he kept showing these scenes of Monticello in the clouds, or clouds above. And I said, Ken, what are you doing? Why are we always seeing all these clouds? And he said something profound. He said, Joe, the clouds, with Jefferson, the clouds are the thing. He's up there somewhere um, in this murky, cloudy world. And I think it's fair to say, despite all his flaws, which I make a point of noticing, and I'm not sure they're burning incense to me in, in Charlottesville these days, anybody in American politics who goes directly up against Jeffersonian values is going to lose. Even FDR, who creates the New Deal, which is everything that Jefferson doesn't believe in, thinks he's a Jeffersonian. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, from a historian, it's frustrating as the Dickens. Um, I think you should really be embracing Adams a lot more than you are. But of course, that's not going to ever happen. There's no monument to Adams on the mall. The, the way I'd put it now in our 21st century mode is that uh, 
that he's the single most important American founder to come to terms with because he simultaneously provides us with the basic liberal values that hold dear, we hold dear, and that define us as, right, the only multicultural society in the world. If you take a look at the Olympics and when the teams come in, for example. On the other hand, he is the the most uh, clear and committed believer in racial inequality, which is still with us in a big way, as we can certainly see in our lives right now. Well, you, you know throughout that, that Jefferson's world is full of, of heroes and villains. Domestically, of course, a villain to him was Alexander Hamilton, a, right. one of our founders who gets a lot of press here lately. Uh, what were the, the primary ideological and policy differences between Hamilton and Jefferson? And how much did the the personal dislike between the two men affect that political rift. It did. I mean, they don't get to know each other until they joined in the cabinet. Uh, remember, Jefferson never fires a shot in anger, and his governorship, being governor, was a bit of an embarrassment because he was forced to flee the governorship and his own and Monticello in the face of a British army, and, the, and Virginia wasn't ready to defend itself, largely because. Jefferson had not prepared it for, for the attack, and the militia were off somewhere else. Though to accuse Jefferson of cowardice at the time, which Patrick Henry did, and they tried to impeach him, in quite fair. What's he supposed to do, stand there and get captured? But Hamilton would have got the highest scores on the SAT, and he's smarter than Jefferson. He's not as well-read, although he's pretty well-read. He's an immigrant. He survived the war and put, you know, risked his life on multiple occasions. And I think that he intimidated Jefferson. And that's hard to do. At one point, Jefferson asks Madison to write some anti-Hamilton pamphlets. This is in 1791. And he says, he, Hamilton, is a host unto himself. No single person but you can go up against him. And Hamilton believed, and this is a fundamental difference that needs to be underlined, that the American Revolution ultimately was a revolution that was destined to create an independent American nation, a nation-sized republic. Jefferson didn't believe that. Jefferson believed that the true meaning of the American Revolution was, the, was a confederation of sovereign states. In some sense, Jefferson's vision is the vision of the Confederacy in 1861. He never changes it. And that any sovereign federal government is a, a replication at the domestic level of the very tyranny that Parliament represented and that we were fighting against. So you've got people who have fundamentally different perceptions of what the American Revolution was all about. And finally, Jefferson thought philosophically Hamilton thought politically and economically. And like most of the Virginia planners, Jefferson took great pride in not understanding economics at all. I mean, they kept going bankrupt and not understanding why. They didn't understand what, comp, you know, what um, compound interest was. And, um, and they were sort of proud of it. All those guys, by the way, all, I mean, except for Washington, all the pro for prominent Virginia planners, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Henry, they all go bankrupt. They die bankrupt. So when Madison, excuse me, when Hamilton proposes assuming the debt and creating a bank, it's like this is coming out of some strange world that Jefferson doesn't even understand. Madison, excuse me, Hamilton is formidable. He's also uh, capable of being just as duplicitous as, mm -hmm. as Jefferson on the other side. Uh, anyway, I'm flabbergasted that the most prominent founder now on Broadway and elsewhere is Hamilton. If you said that he's going to be the one that's going to be a star on Broadway, I would have, I would have, you know, I've given you a thousand dollars in a bet, but he did. <laughs> and Miranda happens to be a genius as oh, Hamilton yes. was. They were made out of different cloth and they were destined to be enemies. Uh, and uh, I'm sure Jefferson smiled when he heard about Weehawk and, and Hamilton's early death. You speak of the differences on what America was was meant to be. Obviously, great differences also on the meaning of the French Revolution. France was a hero to, to Jefferson. And given that admiration he had for France, what were his thoughts on the revolution, especially as it spiraled into violence and eventually uh, to Bonaparte? 
you know, he was a supporter of the French. He believed that the French Revolution was the American Revolution brought to European soil. Whereas Adams kept trying to tell him, and then when their correspondence later keeps telling him that you're wrong, uh, they can't do what we did. It's a fundamentally different political and social and economic situation, and it's going to end in tyranny. It's going to end in, in a Caesar or an emperor, and that's, of course, what happened. But Jefferson didn't think that way. And during the time that he's American ambassador in in Paris, he's talking to the looming uh, you know, to Lafayette and others who are supporting the revolution in its early stages. And he leaves just before it enters its most violent phase and gets back to America. And when his former secretary uh, writes him and says, you know, our friends are being sent to the, to the uh, guillotine here. And I'm watching the heads roll down the street in front of me. Jefferson says, I don't want to hear about that. That's not something I want you to tell me about. And he has a, some sort of image about Adam and Eve. He says, if, if the world is all reduced just to Adam and Eve and everybody else is killed, it'll be worth it in this revolution. It's a sort of a Maoist idea, you know, that you, you have to break eggs and, you know, and all that to, to, to have a revolution succeed. And um, if that was a private letter, if it ever was published, it would have been politically calamitous for, for Jefferson. Late in his life, in the correspondence with Adams in 1821, I think, you know, Adams is doing the I told you so thing on the French Revolution. And this is after Waterloo, of course. And and um, Jefferson says, you were right and I was wrong. I would have thought maybe 100,000 deaths, but not a million. And he's talking about the Napoleonic Wars now. So he, he concedes the point. But it's it's a useful political tool when he is in leading an opposition party in the, in the Republican Party because this is the, the 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 French supporting the French and the French Revolution is his major uh, point of difference between his Republican Party and the Federalists and he uses it to uh, to gain power. Of course, he gains the presidency in eighteen hundred and an election often called the Revolution of eighteen hundred. How did Jefferson interpret the meaning of that election? He called it uh, the Second American Revolution or the Real American Revolution or the recovery of the true Whig or the real Whig identity of the American Revolution. And what he meant by that was a fundamental, that the Constitution was a uh, counter-revolution. The Constitution made the federal government a powerful authority that can make both domestic and foreign policy. And he says this is a, was a perversion and a repudiation of the true values of the revolution, which must allow for power to remain at the state and, and uh, level. And he really believed that. I mean, if you, you can read that through the, you know, the antebellum period and say all this is, is really a subterfuge to protect slavery. And it certainly becomes that. But I've read the Adam, excuse me, the Jefferson Madison correspondence in its entirety. And if you're going to find any kind of secret, you know, claim, yeah, guess what? By the way, by insisting on this, it, we are sure that the federal government's not going to be able to end slavery. They never say that. They never say that. But that's the consequence. And uh, and so later on, when the when the uh, you get to the you know the arguments by the South Carolinians that that really Jeff he says Jefferson really is is saying exactly what we're saying that the federal government government cannot regulate slavery inside the United States and um, by then Jefferson's dead and Madison says no no that's not what he meant you know, <laughs> right. that's not what he really meant and he's living up to the last words that Jefferson said to him which were take care of me when I am dead and uh, Madison does that. That's a perfect segue to talking about another of your excellent books and a very different personality, uh, Passionate Sage, the character and legacy of John Adams. Now, you say at the beginning of that that Adams was the most self-revealed, instinctively candid, gloriously fallible, wholly honest founding father. Now, did this make him easier to analyze than the others you've written about, or did that wealth of information raise perhaps more questions than answers for you? It did make him easier. I was on, I think, the Charlie Rose show once talking about, he said, well, you know, why do you write about Adams? And I said, because he gives you so much material, his letters, so candid, his diaries. 
I mean, Washington's diary is about the weather, you know? Yeah. Adams's diary about the weather inside his soul, the get you know, the, the the winds blowing through his soul. And uh and Charlie said, you know, oh well, you know, that's not that I said, listen, have you ever written a biography? He said, Well, no. And I said, <laughs> you don't understand. If you're a biographer, you are at the mercy of what your person, what your subject gives you in the way of harm, unless you're writing fiction. And the fact that there, we've got 1,600 letters between John and Abigail, and we have no letters. Well, we have three letters between our Martha and George. Uh, the rest were destroyed. I mean, it tells you, it, you know, it just gives you insights that are otherwise. But in addition, Adams himself is uh, an inherently candid, faults and all guy. And in some sense, he's the he's the person who launches me in. It's the first of the first books about the founding that I wrote, and in the early in early uh, I say seventeen nineties, nineteen nineties. And what he made me more aware of than I've been before is, Joe, you are the historian of imperfection, and you will recover the founders as imperfect human beings. That this notion that they were, you know divinely inspired and tongues of fire appeared over their heads at Continental Congress or whatever. All that's mythological nonsense. You know, Emerson said they saw God face to face. We can only see him secondhand. No, they didn't. <laughs> and Adams is the guy who is the most patently imperfect and therefore the perfect guy. And um, he's honest about his ambitions. He's honest about his vanity. His correspondence with, with Jefferson is the culminating correspondence of the revolutionary generation. The North and South Poles, uh, Benjamin Rush called it a revolution. And um, it, it tried to imagine any two subsequent American presidents in retirement who could have that kind of correspondence. But anyway, he's a person who tells you what he's thinking. He's a person who tells you what he's feeling. He's a person who's got a wife that writes as well as he does and that, that, that is the original steel magnolia, even though she's <laughs> not from Mississippi. And um, uh, and so as a biographer, it's just the Garden of Eden. And, and um, there's a first line. It's one of the best first lines in any biography by Lytton Strachey, beginning of uh, eminent Victorians. He says, the history of the Victorian era can never be written. We know too much about it. And with Adams, you get down to, you know, he allows you to say, okay, I can't do everything, but here's a guy who's going to tell me the truth about what they were really saying in the Continental Congress as, as the revolution is approaching. And, and he's so honest and so self-revealed that he, to me, defines the founding generation as probably the greatest generation in political talent. I think there was a British writer said that there were only two moments in Western history when the political elite of an emerging nation behaved about as well as anyone could reasonably expect. It was Rome under Caesar Augustus and the United States under the founding. And, and Adams for me is the entry point into that understanding of a, of a very human, imperfect, but great generation. Yeah, those rich resources you talk about in the archives, the the archives I've directed over the years, we would call that the, the kind of the raw material of history. Yeah, that's where you really find out uh, what really happened, and you learn about the true personalities and the true ideas of these folks. Now, you, you mentioned his role in the first and second Continental Congresses. Mm. How did he establish his political program, his public persona uh, during his service in in both of those Continental Congresses? Well, and. I will answer that, but remember, you know, sometimes I've identified as a presidential historian, and that's not really right, but I have written biographies of the first three presidents, Adams being the second. Of all the first four presidents, none of them, including Adams, believed that the presidency itself was their great achievement. In fact, they regarded the presidency not as a capstone to their careers, but as an epilogue. And in Adams's case, the greatest moment was 70. 47576 it's the coming of the what call it we call the american revolution and being the person who leads the debate who's ahead of popular opinion who is saying we're waiting for a messiah who will never come 
And the play 1776 does a good job of covering, of recovering Adams in that moment. I think poor John Dickinson suffers a bit, but um, (laughs) this is Adams's moment. And it's, it's natural for it to be Adams because the Brits have focused on Massachusetts and occupied Boston. And so it is his bailiwick and constituency that is being uh, persecuted and the rest of the colonies are thinking, well, I mean, we don't want to get pulled into the abyss uh, by these crazy people up in Massachusetts. And Adams and, and his cousin, Sam Adams, are the two people who who carry the water for Massachusetts and who, who make the arguments about British rights that the colonists have and that are being violated. And the argument that if, in fact, we do go to war, the notion that we have no chance of winning is exactly wrong. In fact, they have no chance in winning. And I've come to that real, uh, realization fairly recently that, that Adams was right about, well, events prove him to be right. But his great moment is, is in the coming of the revolution and mobilizing and, and working it slowly, um, not getting too far ahead because he, he knows that popular opinion has to ripen on the vine, as he says. But whenever he's asked who is the person most responsible for making the American Revolution happen, everybody thinks he's going to say, well, I don't want to brag, but it was probably me. He doesn't say that. You know what he says? George III. And and in that sense, he's right. George III mm-hmm. plays, uh, you know, doubles down on all of his mistakes. Uh, I've done a book called uh, First Family, as well as the one uh, called uh, Passionate Sage, in which the family life and the relationship between Abigail and John and their children is is woven into the political story, or the political story is woven in around that. And um, I, I think that the relationship between Abigail and John is also a kind of. I had students at Mount Holyoke that would we taught. I taught a course on this for several years, and they, they'd read all the correspondence and. Years later, you know, 10 years later, they'd write, some of them would write back and say, you know, Abigail said the highest virtue is resilience. And that I've really learned, you know, that's what kept me so that I became CEO of Pillsbury or whatever it was. And there's a great line that Abigail has when her sister asks her whether she would, if she could do it over again, she'd marry John. And Abigail says, I cannot imagine suffering with anybody else. <laughs> That's a great line. And when students read the Abigail, oh, excuse me, when students, and I've taught it many years, the, the Adams Jefferson correspondence, which is available in paperback from UNC Press, all of them entered the course thinking they're going to love Jefferson and think Jefferson's the best writer. And possibly because of the teacher, but I hope not uh, because the students end up saying, well, Adams is more interesting and Adams is just as good a writer. And this one student who later went on to become artistic director at Showtime said, Adams is this. No, excuse me. Jefferson is this. And she put her hand up and waved in the in the air above her head. And then Adams is this. And she formed a fish fist and punched at you. And uh, and he, if you read, you know, if, if for prose style, uh, he's tough to beat. I love the book First Family, that kind of intersecting of revolutionary times, personal lives. Really a great read. And when you were doing that research, I wondered what surprised you most about their relationship. Well, when, you know, you go into it sort of knowing they're going to live together and not get divorced. Yeah. And when you know that they're going to uh, you know live together in this, he called it Montezillo as a joke because <laughs> right. it wasn't as lavish a mansion. I think that there's some specific moments that really startled me. And I'll give you one of them. The level of honesty there, hard to have that in a marriage and have it survive. They're at a, the- they're at a, French and Parisian uh, play on Othello, and um, she doesn't know it, but the actors are in blackface. She thinks it's a black guy playing Othello, does does Abigail. And when there's a scene with Desdemona and the kissing scene between the two, she comes back and says to John, you know, I don't like the feeling I had just now. It's not something I could control, but I had this horrible feeling, this this revulsion 
And it was a statement about her racism that was so honest. And this is a woman, you know, who's critical of, of, uh, of slavery and who's whose house slave that she allows run the, the, plant, the, the home when she's gone is, is an African-American woman. She's a way of talking to us about how racism is so powerful and subtle, and she recognized it in herself. And then they talked about it. Anyway, that's a specific thing. I like the book because it, it allows you to talk about not the combination of the political history that they're living through and that is that they're making and is making them, but also their their personal lives in a way mm-hmm. that husbands and wives now and younger women at, at Mount Holyoke who are looking forward to families, it's preaching, it's not preaching, it's teaching a form of inside history or soulful history that uh, I think is of equal importance as who wins the, who wins the election. You know, looking at his presidency, the the issues with France, the quasi war, the, mm. the continued obviously domestic issues of him fighting uh, not only uh, uh, pretty much everyone, a uh, fellow with no party. Right. Uh, well, well, I know he was quite frustrated in his four years there. What would he have said was his greatest accomplishment and and his greatest failure in those four years as president? That's easy, uh, uh, not easy, but for me, I think I have answers. His greatest achievement was not going to war against France because we couldn't afford to be drawn into a war at that time. That's the reason he lost the election. I think he would have won the election easily if he decided to go to war with France in 1799. Um, And so he always says the proudest jewel in his crown is, is losing the election. Adams is that guy that goes sort of a little bit too far in believing when he does something that's unpopular, he's sure he's right. Um, (laughs) He's the exact opposite of a contemporary president or congressman or senator who believes that everything he does has to lead to his reelection. I think the thing he most regretted is the Alien and Sedition Acts. They came from the, not from him, but from the, the, the Hamiltonian wing of the, of the Federalist Party. And even Hamilton didn't have, wasn't sure about them. But you got to remember, even Washington supported the Alien and Sedition Acts. He was retired. And this is the one area that I think Abigail led him somewhat astray. Namely, she encouraged his endorsement of the Island of Sedition Acts because the newspapers were taking her husband to the cleaners um, in, in ways that, you know, make Fox News look tame. There's a New Jersey editor of a weekly called The Wasp, and The Wasp declared that Adams was just a big ass. And, um, and Abigail says, how do they know? I'm the only person who knows that you've got a big ass. <laughs> and in fact, you do have a big ass. But you know, one of, but she's a lion protecting her her husband in this regard, or and so she encourages this. But that's, I think, without question, his biggest regret. He doesn't regret being a one termer, and his son will be in exactly the same position You're, they, because they both believe that when there is a conflict between the popular interest and the public interest, you must always choose the public interest. And that's the reason you get elected. And if you don't do that, you don't deserve to be reelected. But the first two presidents of the United States, Washington and Adams, do not believe in political parties. Jefferson, here we are, Jefferson again, claims he didn't either. In fact, Jefferson said, if I, might, if I must go to heaven in a party, I prefer not to go at all. Meanwhile, he's founding the first opposition party in the United States. There, and political scientists will say, well, political parties have played a significant role in disciplining conflict and allowing for a legitimate opposition. And that's all mm-hmm. true. But from the yeah. point of view of Adams and Washington, these were like evil forces inside the government. They didn't see themselves as leaders of a party. And if they ever became leaders of a party, they thought they should quit. Parties were evil in their view. And Adams remained true to that classical definition of politics. And that, in that sense, he was an, 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 what, an anachronism. But I find him a very seductive anachronism these days. Now, Adams and Jefferson both died on July 4th of 1826. And after that, of course, their legacies have taken very different paths. Hmm. So can you tell us a bit about how those diverged and why you believe that divergence occurred? Well, in part because they do die on the same day, 50th anniversary, and you can imagine what people said about that. Uh, that was 
you know, providential miracle kind of thing. And, um, and you, you know, if you were writing a, a novel, you couldn't make this up. It would not be credible. At least until the Civil War, Jefferson remains the symbol of the emerging Democratic Party. And Jackson uh, and then his the other Jacksonians after become carriers of the Jeffersonian legacy. Adams has no legacy politically. I mean, the Federalists go out of existence. And I think that Jefferson's legacy becomes the magic words of the Declaration. And they are, you know, they float across the, the spectrum of both parties. Adams doesn't have a document like that uh, that, that he can say is his. Though Jefferson's reputation begins to decline as we approach the Civil War, because it's clear that he is, it declines in the North, because it's clear that he is, he's a supporter of the Confederate version of the, of the compact. We don't want to overemphasize Jefferson's reputation. It's questionable uh, after a certain number of years. Adams just recedes into the outer darkness and... Um, <laughs> Until his papers start appearing in the 1950s and 60s, and uh, and among scholars now, I think Jeff Adams's reputation is higher than Jefferson's, and for the you know the very reasons I've been articulating, he really does provide historians with more material than than others else. I mean, I I think somebody as smart as Miranda has to do Adams and put him on Broadway, and Abigail's obviously the co-star here. The immediate effect is that Jefferson becomes the symbol of one of the two major parties, and Adams just disappears. Well, I certainly hope Miranda is listening to American POTUS, and he is, <laughs> and, and please take that idea and run with it. And, and I will say, you know, uh, perhaps it's time for an Adams Memorial Monument in, uh, in Washington, for sure. I testified alongside David McCulloch on this, and uh, we both, mm-hmm. you know, but they grind very slowly there in Washington. I don't yes. know about that, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, no, of course uh, not. <laughs> David, who I'm told is not well, um, he had the idea that I, I thought was interesting. He said it, the Adams Monument should be a small library where you read books of, and, you know, the people come in and read books. And I thought that was a great idea. And the, the, the subcommittee of Congress seemed to think it was a great idea. And then that's the last I heard of it. That was 10, 15 years ago. And there is, you know, the Adams wing of the uh, Library of Congress. These things become extremely political, and um, and that land is the most valuable land in in America. You know, it's not San Francisco or Boston; it's got the highest real estate value. It's the mall and the the, the tidal basin. And I propose that there be an Adams Memorial on the tidal basin, sufficiently removed from the Jefferson Memorial, so Absolutely. contingent on the angle of the sun, they cast shadows on each other's facade. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I still think that's a good idea. So, Joe, from our first history class in school, most of us have heard all about Jefferson and Adams, but hopefully we can reveal a little more about their personal side here. All right. Here's a scenario for you, for you, Joe. Imagine I'm a 12 year old and I need help with my history project on the American Revolution. So who would be better suited to help me get an A plus, Adams or Jefferson? Both of them would flunk you. Or if you follow <laughs> both of them, you'd flunk. Because both of them have storylines that are going to make you write something that's historically incorrect. <laughs> because they're going to both shape their their answer, their advice in directions that uh, endorse their own visions. And it's only when those two visions come together in a single synthesis that you've got anything like the truth. So maybe if you can get them together and get them to, you know, you have to get them, you have to do both of them at the same time. <laughs> so they can cast shadows on each other, like you said. So Jefferson was tall, almost 6'3". Adams was short, roughly five and a half feet. So my question, who would you rather have with you in a dark alley when with when an evil-looking stranger approaches? <laughs> uh, Who's feistier? Well, of the two of them, I'd rather have Adams. He's pugnacious. Jefferson yeah. is too polite, and uh, and he probably, you know, leave you and uh, then say, "Oh my God, he got beat up." I don't know how that happened. <laughs> um, among the founders, I'd like Washington. Oh yeah, uh, he would just, you know, he and Washington was a strong athlete. He was an athlete. When they say, "Well, what did he look like as a young man?" and I said, uh, "Think John Wayne, stagecoach, nineteen thirty nine." 
So he was he was an, almost an Olympic athlete. If I'm in a dark alley, that's it. If you're sitting and you're drinking a beer, who would you want to talk to that spilled the beans? John Adams. And then we could all have a Sam Adams beer. And, yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> if you said, uh, who do you want to uh, take the SATs for you? <laughs> uh, Alexander Hamilton. If you said, who is the wisest of them all? I'd say Benjamin Franklin. Who is the person you want to become your political operative in a crucial negotiation? James Madison. And who is the most impressive legal mind? John Marshall. One of the things that that I've emphasized in my work that I'll maybe end here, we talk about the founders as if they're a coherent, ideologically together group. They are not. It's the diversity within the founding that gives it its strength, not racial diversity, of course, or even gender diversity, but intellectual and political diversity. Uh, there is a built-in form of checks and balance in the temperaments of the founders, as well as in the structure of the Constitution. And that's part of the reason that it succeeds. Joe, that, that's a, a great point, and a, what a fascinating discussion we've had. I wonder, uh, at the same time, I think we've, we've only scratched the surface of that revolutionary era and that diversity of opinion. Would you be willing to stick around and chat with us on a second episode of American POTUS? You got me here. I better stay. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Thanks so much. All right. This is terrific, guys. So let's do this. Let's officially wrap up this episode. Then we'll start a new episode with Joe where we can talk about Washington, the founding fathers, and some of the difficult issues they faced. Okay, does this sound good Uh, to the two of you? Can you give me a 30-second break? Absolutely. Take a break, pour yourself a gill of rum, and (laughs) chew on some tasty hardtack, or whatever you like. I'll do some of that, but I'm not telling you which ones. Thanks for listening to part one of our two-part series on the American Revolution. We'd like to thank best-selling author and Pulitzer Prize winner Joe Ellis for joining us on this episode about Adams and Jefferson. More information on all of his terrific books can be found on AmericanPotus.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPotus.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available in the playlist, including part two of our conversation with Joe Ellis. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from John Adams, quote, One useless man is a shame. Two is a law firm. Three is a Congress.